This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions. In theory, retention is as good as acquisition. Stopping a customer from leaving is as valuable as acquiring a new one, and usually much cheaper. But acquisition gets all the attention, all the awards, all the budget, all the kudos, and all the targets. You can show your friends and family your new TV ad and the award it won, but not the outbound call that reduced churn by 15%. Today's episode is Retention is the New Acquisition, and we welcome in studio Maria Cepalita, Digital Performance Account Director with iProspect, and Peter Tannum, co-founder of Nimble Metrics. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Maria, let's start with customer retention. It's not new. It's always easier to sell to an existing client than it is to acquire a new one. Absolutely. And I suppose in our jobs on agency side, we often want to advise clients on what's the best for them, looking at the full funnel, the full business, what's the problem, where exactly the problem lies. And almost referring back to one of your first podcasts here with Shenda Lochnan and uh, David Haig, they were speaking about how companies often focus overly on the bottom side of the funnel for getting the top and for getting to build the brand. So we're here to talk what happens after you bring them through the funnel? Do you just forget about that customer? Or should you actually focus your investment there and see how it grows and make bigger business efficiencies through that? And one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your articles and thinking about this show was when you're a startup, for example, when you're a a burgeoning business and you land that client that gets you off the ground, so you have runway now all of a sudden because of a client it's often easy to forget about them when you move on to the next client because that becomes the next new shiny thing. And it's kind of like our intro today where CMOs, for example, are focusing on the next big thing. Maybe it's VR or maybe it's AI and they're forgetting about the very customers and retaining those customers, the ones that got them to where they are today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, so I know that from helping uh, clients with their business and I know it from ourselves when we started uh, exactly as I said it is so difficult when you've landed your first big client uh, to, to not then go you know go back out to the world uh, and start trying to find more but businesses who invest the time and the energy into helping their clients I know some sales people call it like hunting and farming right so if you spend more of your time farming and less of your time hunting that can produce huge rewards so uh, the kind of things you get from investing into current clients in that model in a in a b2b model is more referrals right and and think of how much easier it is if somebody refers you and says hey we used to do work with such and such an agency they're brilliant versus you knocking on the door with a cold email that says hey just found your name on LinkedIn, would love to, you know, ping you. How many of those do you get a day that you just ignore, like all of us do, get seven, <laughs> right? But the warm lead, the warm referral that comes from a well-looked-after client is 10 times more valuable. Let's talk about retention from two perspectives. One, Peter, from your perspective as a consultant, essentially, with Nimble Metrics, and then, Maria, from your perspective as an agency. So how does retention work within an agency strategy and working for clients? It's a very good question. I suppose we should start looking first of all at what data is available to us from the said client and what the key problem is and can the existing data help solve that problem or do we need to capture something additional. So what we often notice is that clients have an abundance of data that they have collected from people who are willingly sharing it with them, hoping for a better experience and a better customer service but that data is not being used at all, or it's being used badly. And if retention is what we're striving for, then we need to use that first-party data 
and apply it to either um, show the right message to the right people, make sure that they maintain the relationship with the brand or or, or the service or whatever it might be, uh, whether that's for retention or, or even further down the line, upselling some sort of a different product or service. Then from the data perspective, one of the big things you hear about data is firstly, how clean is that data? So you would see this a lot, Peter, but also then getting data out of the silos within the business because you have these competing silos and they just won't share the data. And that is absolutely key to a holistic strategy. It is uh, absolutely like the data is hugely valuable. Um, and I kind of like where the data sits in, in a company kind of tells, if you look at that over the last 10 years or so, I think it tells a really interesting story about how retention and acquisition have evolved in industry and especially in, in Ireland over the last 10 years. So uh, the acquisition teams get all the budgets, uh, like your intro said, uh, they get the kudos and they run the large campaigns. Uh, the retention teams don't have those budgets typically. Uh, they tend to attract, uh, in in my uh, experience, a little bit of the the kind of nerdier people, the the people who love a little bit more Excel and a little less PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, so they they do some really cool and interesting work. Uh, they don't get the budgets, but what they do have is the data. So they usually have a CRM system of some sort that has all of the uh, customer data. And, and the companies that have been doing really, really interesting stuff are doing exactly what you said, investing in that data, making sure it's it's clean. So a lot of big companies, energy companies, telcos, et cetera, would have had uh, somebody in a call center saying, oh, what's your email address? Typing it in, but typing it in wrong, right? Or people filling in a form in the shop and they, they get digits wrong and their phone number and that stuff. So a lot of them have been investing a lot of time and energy in making sure the data is clean, but then also investing in the strategies and the thinking of what do you do with that data once you have it. Um, so some really start, smart stuff like um, when somebody buys a new phone that you email them a few days later and tell them about uh, insurance for that that phone or not emailing somebody six months after they've got an insurance contract because you know it's a 12-month contract instead email them in month 11 or you know these kind of things tend to be what you can do with low budgets but really really good data um, so I think the challenge now for the if that's the last 10 years the next 10 is probably those two things crossing over a bit more which is the acquisition teams looking to get access to that data to make use of it and then the retention teams looking to get some of that budget. You mentioned their CRM for example or say it's social media listening. What are the ingredients that are possible so the data ingredients that you can put into this mixing bowl to create a really good customer retention strategy anything <laughs> <laughs> whatever you have and importantly like always importantly but especially in a gdpr world whatever the customer consents to give you and, uh, and let you use so I, I think that can depend a huge amount on the industry that you're in so Maria and I were chatting before, we were trying to think of, was it a matrix or a graph or something that we could think of to, to plot companies and industries on how good your data can be? So I think at one end it was, what do we say, banking or something like that, right? You have a really deep relationship with your customer, you know a huge amount about them. They have an account and it's probably going to stick with you for life. And at the very, very under the other end of the scale is a, a chocolate bar or something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. You, don't, you never get the email address of who buys a chocolate bar. If you sell 10 in a day, you don't know if that's one person buying 10 or 10 people buying one. Uh, you know, so 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 a lot of it can depend on the the nature of your relationship with the client and and how much data is kind of natural as part of that. So then it becomes a question of how do I get that data under the guidelines of GDPR? This show is brought to you by GDPR. <laughs> so how do you do that, Marie? So some low budget 
approaches that you've seen that have been successful would be great to hear about. Mm -hmm. So I suppose when we're collecting the data, or, or rather when the clients are collecting the data, because we have to do everything under very strict uh, compliance laws in the sense that clients need to instruct us what we are allowed to collect, but we're able to advise as to what they should be collecting. When it comes to low budget strategies and exactly the money saving aspect of it, what really works is when you know exactly what kind of people are not likely to convert. And you can use that data and data signals across various uh, social media and, and uh, Google platforms as well to exclude those people uh, or people who are similar to those people, as well as exclude the specific person who was declined. Um, so it, it makes their experience much better. Um, it doesn't annoy them. It doesn't waste the client's budget. Uh, on the most simplified way as to where we would use first-party data to make campaigns more efficient, it would be, say, if we know that these are the types of people who buy or apply or whatever it might be, the final customer point, um, we will then try and find lookalikes of them. So it's not a new strategy per se, but still it feels like not everybody's using it and definitely not everybody's using it well. Let's move into some examples then. So let's give some examples of the good, the bad and the ugly. Okay, so what are you seeing that's really good? What ingredients are involved in a really good strategy? And some good examples of brands who are doing it well, even starting from a low budget. A telco we worked with for a Valentine's Day campaign uh, a few years back. And what they were doing was they wanted to say, switch to us uh, and get 20 euro free credit, right? It's a fairly standard offer in the market, but they had two big problems. One is if you're a telco, uh, you probably already have a million or so customers. So if you're running an ad on Facebook in Ireland, a huge portion of the people you hit are going to be your own customers. And especially this was a youth-focused telco without giving away any names. Uh, so once they started doing some targeting on their Facebook ads and saying, okay, well, we know young people are most likely to switch to our network. So we're going to target it at young people, uh, you know, certain demographics, certain age groups. Uh, you end up narrowing that down so much that in this case, they found that like 50% of the people who are seeing their ads saying switch to us were existing customers. So A, that's a huge waste of money. Uh, B, it's really annoying. Like it's the kind of thing that customers complain about all the time is uh, if you if you show them kind of offers that are for them to stick around, but also offers for people to switch, they go, hey, why, is, why are the people, the new people uh, getting all the offers? Why am I not getting rewarded for my loyalty? So what we ended up doing with, with them was they were able to use that first party data to stop showing those ads to existing customers, instead show them a different retention focused or loyalty focused message, and then show only the, the acquisition focused one, hey, switch to us and get 20 euro free. They showed that to only non-customers. So it cut the cost of their campaign in half, but they still reached the exact same number of non-customers and it didn't piss off their existing customers, win-win. So that's that's an example of a great one. And, and what it does is it's a good story of taking uh, the the asset that the retention team have, which is the uh, the CRM database or the knowledge of the first-party data, and it unlocks that for the acquisition teams to use. But it also unlocks the channels that the acquisition teams usually use, like Facebook or Google. So usually, usually that's only to run acquisition ads. And usually the retention team can only send emails or send text messages or letters. But now they, the retention team can put a nice loyalty message through Facebook uh, to the customer. So it's a really nice crossover. And it's the start of what we're seeing of retention and acquisition teams starting to work together a little bit 
you know, there's still still turf wars in every company, <laughs> but but a little bit more simpatico and a little bit kind of working. Yeah, together. and that turf war thing is a real big challenge. I mean, there's cultural challenges that a lot of business strategy challenges. But one thing you reminded me there was Amazon. So I buy a lot of books on Amazon. And when Amazon tried to sell you a book you've bought on Amazon, it really annoys the hell out of me. And that's like a company that has invested millions and billions in AI. And they are should be absolute top of their game. But you talked about one that was in a way potentially bad that turned good. So what about ugly? So what 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 can we see that something to steer clear of? Something and something, Maria, you you'd have spotted these low-lying fruit that people just have not thought of because I, I, I empathize hugely with marketers. There's so much on their plate now. All of a sudden, they have to think about data. They have to think about AI. And these things are all relatively new for them. Retention is now thrown often in the marketing budget and taken out of that budget. So they have a ex- hugely fragmented marketplace now to understand and to support. I have a lot of things to say off the back of that. <laughs> so first of all, I'm glad you mentioned Amazon because this is my biggest pet peeve um, example of what not to do, especially in Ireland and especially what with, they do with Audible. I don't know if you have a subscription, but they are constantly advertising to me, get this book for free, get this book for free, sign up to Audible. I am already a subscriber. I have been a subscriber for over a year. They should have excluded me from all of their advertising a long time ago, and they do have all my data. They know exactly what to show to me, what to promote. So why can't they do something as basic as that so as not to annoy me? When it comes to the clients that we work with, mm, Kind of coming back to the previous note uh, or the previous message that you you said, um, we were speaking about the budgets and how the budgets are being allocated. The bigger the problem, the or sorry, the bigger the client, the bigger this seems to be a problem because the bigger the company, the more departments they have and the bigger the budget separation, right? So what often ends up happening is that marketing team is given a specific target and they're said, okay, this is how many items you have to sell or this is how many leads you have to get. And nobody talks about what happens afterwards and nobody talks that there's a retention problem and nobody talks that investing into the funnel will cost them so much more than retaining a customer, especially if we're talking about any kind of services, utilities, subscription-based clients. Of course, it doesn't apply to each and every single vertical or in some verticals it might apply slightly differently, but it's important to note that. And some bad examples that we've seen without necessarily mentioning the specific company names. Um, One would be where there is a miscommunication between the teams and they just don't want to share the data or they don't understand how that data would be used. And they don't understand that people have already consented to it, that it's completely legal, it's completely compliant, and all we're trying to do is make their money work harder. So there is a complete dis. There's a detachment basically between the marketing teams, the legal teams potentially, and the the acquisition teams. And I often think about, so I mentioned the empathy for the marketer here. So you're a marketer, you're working hard on retention, you've got it. So you guys have spoken to them, right? And you've convinced them this is absolutely key, that you don't want to lose those customers, especially in, in a way where the marketplace is fragmenting more and more. There's more and more options for people. But oftentimes the board or whoever that person is reporting to as a marketer is putting pressure on them for new growth, new high level growth that is not that possible anymore. So there's a magic number 15% that's bandied around all the time, particularly in American strategy. That's impossible when you're dealing with trying to retain your customers already and use the budget that you already had for your entire marketing campaign. 
Yes, and I suppose business growth is not just about getting new leads. It can be about getting uh, the old customers to stay. It could be about getting them to buy more. And it's identifying which uh, element will work best for your customers. That's that's key, really. Another thing is, in some industries, you only have a finite number of customers. So there's only that many new houses that are going to be built that will require a new electricity contract or a mortgage. You can't just suddenly... 3D print a bunch of new houses. Maybe someday we will. <laughs> maybe that's 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 the, maybe that's the solution Scrap to the idea. Shane, give me the idea. Take it off the list. <laughs> maybe that's the solution to all our problems in Dublin. Who knows? Um, but at the moment, you know, there there will be uh, only a finite number of women who get pregnant if we're targeting pregnant women or or mothers with newborns or something like that. So it's important to bear that in mind as well. Yeah, so you, you reminded me of something here. So I mentioned maybe human issues. So silo wars, etc. people not sharing data across and misunderstanding across different departments. But also then, in a world where AI and machine learning are increasingly doing more and more of this work, so particularly with data, it can get it wrong as well, because you do need human elements included in the AI. There's the example of machine and human working well together. Because often, if a machine says yes, it's not often always yes is the answer. So the example that I've heard a lot about is Target years ago. Oh, yes. So <laughs> it's a very famous example. It's when um, a father of a girl received um, a magazine full of coupons for baby products. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he did not know that his daughter was pregnant and she had not told him. And he went on to pretty much sue Target, but eventually had to apologize because she was indeed pregnant and he just didn't have a clue. I think in that uh, that case, it, it was really fascinating because it was machine learning doing what machine learning does best is just analyzing patterns, right? So in that case, I think it was uh, consumers who tend to buy folic acid several weeks later tend to buy baby products. Machine has no idea why, right? But it just it just pushes that out. And then in this case, like the real human implication of it was that it predicted that a young girl was was pregnant. And, and that has a lot of, uh, you know, difficult connotations for the father, for the, for the group. Now, what Target ended up doing was they intentionally uh, started putting in like right next to nappies, it would put uh, tractor products or, you know, uh, cattle feed so that it, it, it was still an accurate prediction, but it felt less creepy because it would just seem random in there. And again, like, again, that's something the machine learning piece can pick up on because when people think something is less creepy, they'll go, oh, okay, I just happened to get a, a thing for nappies. What a coincidence, right? And purchase along. But I think that that is a great example of uh, like the fact that machine learning is new and it will accelerate these things. But if they're underlying problems in in the decision making we're doing anyway uh, all machine learning and ai will do is is make that a little bit worse so back to your original point about the the senior people uh, in the company pushing down metrics like the problem is that they're pushing down growth specifically as new customer acquisition rather than calling it uh, uh, revenue growth or what's our annual recovering revenue or monthly recurring revenue and knowing that, like the best companies know that that can come from either uh, increasing the number of customers we have or increasing the lifetime value of the customers that are already with us or a combination of both. And several different industries have different words. The tech industry all call it, I think it's like net uh, net dollar margin or something like that. So if you have somebody like Slack, they're looking at the number of new companies that join them, but they're also num- looking at the number of employees uh, within each company that that are on the account. And 
accelerating both of those leads to us earning more money next year than we earned last year. And so if you have those metrics coming down from the top uh, and they're saying, not saying, hey, how many new leads, how many new leads, how many new leads each week to the head of marketing, if they're saying, okay, what's our lifetime value? How's it looking? What's our lifetime value multiplied by the number of new customers we're getting or something like that? It's a much healthier thing to be asking. And then when you layer in your AI and your machine learning on top of that, it starts optimizing towards a better metric, which is lifetime value, rather than optimizing just blindly towards acquisition and growth. Nice one. Well, you've teed us up nicely then for what does a really good strategy look like? So I suppose it is a million euro, perhaps multi-million euro question for some companies. And it really boils down to identifying where the problem lies when we're looking at the full funnel. Is it about driving demand? Is it about driving the understanding of what your company does? Is it about making sure people convert? Or is it about once they've converted, how do you retain them? Identifying where the key issues are and and how do you balance that budget between uh, the different stages and the different uh, life cycle parts that is crucial. And if in your company, if it's a large company, if in your company you have multiple teams responsible for different parts of that funnel and what happens with the data and the money after people have converted, well, then you all have to sit down together and identify your overall business goals and how do they translate into marketing goals? Because at the moment, it's just way too siloed. In your article in the Irish Times, you mentioned this idea of retention mindset. I'd love, Peter, if you'd tell us about this. Sure. So retention mindset, uh, we were trying to sum up some of the key learnings, uh, let's say over the last 10 years that have come out of retention base management, customer value management teams and their strategies. And I think the two key ones to take away are first is lifetime value, which we already touched on a bit, which is this notion of picking a key metric, a key guiding number that is a bit better than just acquisition numbers or growth numbers. That's looking at the value of the customer over the lifetime of their relationship with you. So that can include uh, acquisition activities. So going to find more high value customers, not just going to find people who switch their energy provider or their bank every single year and are therefore going to leave you straight away. Like go find people who are going to be high value and will invest, who, who will be worth you investing in them over the long term. And then also invest time and energy and resources into increasing their value over time, cross-selling, nurturing that relationship, making sure they don't churn, etc. And so lifetime value is the first key one. And then the second one is is that notion of relationships, like thinking of the relationship with your customer. That's where the data plays a big part. Like you don't uh, collate and track all this data just for its own sake. It's really how you manage relationships at scale, thinking about your customer segments, how they move and change over time. So, So I think those are the two big lessons that if other parts of the marketing department or even other parts of the business took from the retention teams. It would be, think about relationships, relationships with your customer, how you build them over time, and then how you measure them through lifetime value. Do you want to mention where people can find more about Nimble Metrics? Sure, you can find us at nimblemetrics.io. Maria Cipollita, Digital Performance Account Director with iProspect, and Peter Tanham, co-founder of Nimble Metrics. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to our partners in Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions and Shane and the team in Collaborative Studios. Thank you very much.